As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today to answer some lister questions are Graham Ruffin. Hi, Graham. Hello, Taylor. And Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hello. <laughs> it's very abbreviated introductions. Ryan Bailey is not with us. He's locked in a Starbucks somewhere in England, spending as much time as he possibly can in his favorite location. Since Ryan is not here, I will be hosting uh, our listener question episode, but I'm starting off by asking a question of my own. I was listening to the latest episode of the U.S. Soccer Podcast with Bobby Warshaw and Greg Berhalter, and it made me wonder if either of you could do a podcast series with one manager who would it be with and why? While I give y'all a moment to ruminate on that, I will say congratulations to the U.S. Women's National Team for their emphatic win last night over Uzbekistan. 9-0 is an impressive result, to say the least. My hope is to talk about them in more depth next week. Inspired by this tweet from at Climbing Cantor, let's get one of the many outstanding journalists on the show to discuss the generational conflict and turnover Vlatko is trying to manage. Rapino Press and Morgan versus Pew Smith and Macario. That is a great shout, something we will hope be able to do in more detail next week, but wanted to mention it up front. And now, Graham Ruffin, who are you hosting a podcast series with? Louis Van Hal is who I would pick. <laughs> For which of the many possible reasons? Oh, yeah, many reasons. Uh, he doesn't exactly hold back. I think it's fair to say you'll get some straight answers out of him. He's also been at some big clubs and some pretty interesting situations so like Ajax in the 90s with all that talent um and Barcelona in the two in the early 2000s when things weren't going so well and then of course Manchester United as well so and he's been at World Cups and tournaments and national teams and yeah so Louis van Gaal and he's and he's a pretty weird dude and I feel like that's what you need on a yeah. podcast as weird dudes, <laughs> which is why we're all sitting here. I do. That is part of the dynamic of of uh, the Bobby Warshaw, Greg Berhalter podcast is the sort of like awkwardness of asking a, a coach about what they're doing and the coach not really wanting to divulge that much information, but also having to at the same time. I feel like Louis Van Hall would 
maybe not strike that balance well, but at the very least make for an entertaining uh, co-host. So that's a great shout, Graham. Joe, what about you? It's Jesse Marsh for me. I'm tempted by Bruce Arena, but I I don't think that he would do it at all. Like, even if he agreed to do it, I still don't (laughs) think he would do it. You know, he would just sort of sit there and and mumble and grumble and all that stuff, you know? So I think Jesse (laughs) Marsh would be... Go ahead, Graham. I I, I thought you were going to say, I don't think he would like me. (laughs) No, that's a huge part of this. That is a massive part of this. Jesse Marsh, I don't know if he'd like me or not, but I think he would be engaging and entertaining and would dive into things that I like to talk about more than a lot of other coaches out there. I just think he's an interesting guy. Tom Bogart, I still haven't had a chance to read it, but Tom Bogart just dropped like a 4,000 word feature on some of the wild stories from Jesse Marsh's career more stateside. And and he's got a ton of history that would be fascinating to dive into. And then a bunch of the tactical stuff as well, I think would be great. Did, did anyone see that the MLS, the early MLS penalties were bouncing yep. around yeah. Twitter <laughs> yep. a few days ago? And the clip was... The way I'm linking that is the clip was of Jesse Marsh taking one for the Chicago Fire. And I always think it's funny when uh, predominantly English football fans discover They're like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh, good days. We need to bring those back. We need to bring those back. Gentlemen, that is a great start. I love both those answers. Who are you picking, Taylor? Who are you picking? Uh, Diego Simeone, just because it would be a good exercise in learning how to be brief in my questioning and learning (laughs) how to ask questions succinctly but without any sort of uh, indicator that I'm leading because I feel like Diego Simeone would not enjoy being told what he was doing or how he was doing it. Uh, And recording a podcast with the equivalent of a caged Wolverine would make for some interesting uh, atmosphere and dynamics and all that good stuff. Yeah, and don't expect a handshake at the end of the podcast. No, he just sprints in, answers questions very succinctly, and then sprints back out very very fast all in black obviously and we'd be recording in a black box studio with black mics it would be difficult to know if he was actually present until he started screaming (laughs) yeah just his eyes and his his teeth that is terrifying i I love alice in wonderland already made that a terrifying proposition diego simeone as the cheshire cat is even more terrifying (laughs) i'm gonna move swiftly away from that one before i have actual nightmares uh i'm going to ask instead a question from joseph uh tobiasen joe if Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola switched jobs, who would win the league? Who would win in a head-to-head matchup? Awesome question, Joseph. Joe's and Joseph's and, and Joey's always mm-hmm. ask the best questions. Of and, course. And there's no bias there at all, despite what I said on yesterday's show. I don't know who would win a head-to-head because I think the squads are, are so talented in their own ways. I, I think predicting that is a bit of a fool's errand, and, and you guys are welcome to, to do something else on that front. But as far as who would win the league, I thought about this a lot. I think Pep's Liverpool would win this league. I I think this is less about Pep versus Klopp in my mind and their different qualities as a manager. Maybe you guys will go in a different direction on that. But for me, it's more about the comparative flexibility of both squads. So so what I mean by that is I think Liverpool's squad would adapt to Pep. And and by adapting to Pep, I also mean adapting to a more possession-based style than Klopp. Then then Man City's uh, squad would adapt to Klopp's more aggressive at times, more pressing and direct style. So if we think about Liverpool's squad, I'm going to try to offend my my answer here. If you think about their squad, you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's now playing for Pep Guardiola in this situation, who I think would be a phenomenal fullback creator for Pep's Liverpool. He does that in a different way for City. It's it's a bit more direct and aggressive, but he's so good on the ball. His set pieces could replace De Bruyne's set pieces in some ways. I think he would be a great presence at right back. Then Fabinho and Thiago would be wonderful pieces in central midfield. Uh, Pep's worked with Thiago before, I believe, and, and he certainly enjoys yeah. really technical players in central midfield. Fabinho, I think, would, would be more or less a like-for-like for Rodri. Not exactly the same player, but similar 
And then Salah and Mane and even Luis Diaz can do pretty much any job in the world as far as their attacking responsibilities go. They can press, and, and Pep's, Pep's Liverpool, this is weird to think about, will press in this thought experiment, but they can also be with providers. They can also be more direct and, and dribbly on the ball, which is something that, that Pep likes to see from his wingers with City. And then Firmino and, and Diogo Jota, I think, would be perfect flex attackers for Pep. Firmino would, would I think, be perfect for Pep dropping between the lines. Jota can do that job. He can rotate out wide as well. Pep loves flexibility, just as, as Klopp does, but I think maybe even more so. And those players would fit really, really well. I, I do think Klopp would get a lot out of City as well. Ruben Diaz doing something like the Virgil van Dijk job. Phil Foden and De Bruyne buzzing around midfield and into the front line. But I, I don't think that City have the same level of uh, attacking pressers and even central midfielders as Klopp would like them to have and as, as Klopp's City, excuse me, as Klopp's Liverpool have, right? So Riyad Mahrez, Raheem Sterling, Jack Grealish, they're not really going to chase you down and maybe they would under Klopp and maybe it would work together perfectly. But strictly from a stylistic standpoint and how these squads could potentially adapt, I think that Pep's Liverpool would be a better team than City's Klopp, and I think Pep would have a better chance of winning the league with this Liverpool group. So to restate, you're saying uh, who's winning head-to-head and who's winning the league? I, I don't know who's winning head-to-head, but I think that I think that Liverpool under Pep Guardiola would win the league because they have a more balanced squad, which is a, a, credit, to your, a credit to Jurgen Klopp and, and the front office there in terms of what they've built. All right. Uh, Graham, agree, disagree? Yeah, I think pretty much I agree. Joe, when you say it's a fool's errand to try and predict, that sounds very much like my sort of game. So I am going to <laughs> predict that uh, Liverpool with uh, Guardiola would win the, the league and also would win the, the head-to-head. It is a very difficult question to answer, though, because I am thinking to myself, well, which manager could achieve instant results with a squad that isn't necessarily built to their specifications? And both Guardiola and Klopp, if we cast our mind way back to the start of their time at their respective clubs... They did need a period of transition at City and Liverpool. It didn't just happen instantly for them there. However, however, if I look at the t- the profile of the two squads, um, I pretty much echo a lot of what Joe says. I-, I think Klopp would struggle a bit more with City than Guardiola would with Liverpool. I think Klopp needs attackers who attack the half spaces and he needs two of them at least. And look, City might have players that can do that, but I, I only really see one player that does that consistently and that's Raheem Sterling. I'm so not. I'm, I am also not sure City have the 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 same level of creativity in both the fullback areas that City have with Ta and and Robertson. Maybe they do it with Yao Cancelo. Maybe Kyle Walker could do that, but we haven't really seen that from him, him recently. Um, I do wonder if Pep would have some trouble with not having a, a central midfield creator and uh, with the the goal threat of KDB. But he would have Fabinho to be his Rodri and Thiago to give him control and dominate the ball, and Firmino and Mane press high. So again, I'm, I'm echoing a lot of what. Joe said, but there, there's not there's not much in it at all. And when I was thinking about it, it struck me just how yes, okay, the two teams do play different games, but in terms of the profile of the squads that they have built, it's there is some a lot of similarities there. So I, yeah. I do think Pep would win quicker with Liverpool, but I also think Klopp, give him a, a couple seasons, he'd probably turn City into a yeah. really good Klopp team as well. 
Yeah, I th- think that's about where I am with this one. Because interestingly, I think I disagreed with both of you. I had it the other way around. But you've kind of talked me into your answers because I forgot about the Tiago link. Joe, it's a good point with Fabinho and Rodri being uh, fairly similar. And the the thing I was going to point out was that Pep went through so many players. There was a lot of turnover. There was a lot of purchasing of players and moving them on uh, until he found the kind of the right combination or the most coachable combination. But you look at the areas that he had issues with would be what goalkeeper and fullbacks primarily. And I think Liverpool have pretty good fullbacks. They've got a pretty good goalkeeper. So I, I, I suddenly realized both of these teams are basically just so talented from top to bottom, or at least their first choice starting 11s, that you don't have major areas of concern. And that's something I think both of you have highlighted already, that there's little areas and who would do this specific role or who would do this secondary task. But overall, it probably just comes down to embracing of the style. And I think Klopp's maybe takes a little bit longer. I think my answer was that if they played this game next week, Liverpool under uh, Pep Guardiola beats Man City. But by next season, I think Man City end up winning the league. But you all may have talked me into it either way. I think uh, we need to make this happen. I'm sure both managers would be totally cool with it. Joe, anything else to add on this one? The only other thing, again, I love this question. It was such a fun thought experiment for me to to do and to go through. I think there is so much overlap between these two teams. and There is a, a ton of similarity in how they play. And maybe the best way for me to think about that is Thiago used to play for Pep Guardiola at, at Bayern and at, at Barcelona. And now he's playing for Jurgen Klopp in Liverpool. And Ilkay Gundogan used to play for Jurgen Klopp in the Bundesliga with Dortmund. And now he plays for Pep City, right? I mean, there is so much overlap in how these managers like to play. At the same time, there are differences as well. And those two players, Thiago and and Gundogan, have been molded by their present coaches just as much as their former ones. But I I think you can even see it with the really, really aggressive bro hug between the two coaches after (laughs) that game over the weekend. You can see how much mutual respect and even commonality there is between these two teams, which is kind of why it was fun to, for me to think about the differences between them to, to pick out who might win in this, uh, in this job switch situation. There, there's also commonality. Did anyone hear uh, Kevin De Bruyne? I'm sure it was Kevin De Bruyne saying that him, his children and Virgil van Dijk's children go to the same school. So they're, like <laughs> they're like best buds. So that's, they had like a chat after, after full time. How, people were a bit confused by that. How does that? work so my my uk geography is not very good but i know that liverpool and manchester are different cities so yeah so they all basically every footballer who plays in the northwest lives in leafy cheshire and so that is that cannot be a real place graham cheshire like the cat leafy cheshire yeah like it was like nice and oh 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 cool 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 (laughs) i'm with you i thought it was the name at first let's move do you live in in the hobbit (laughs) what what are we doing here but now i'm with you no cheshire it is leafy there Gotcha. Coolio. Good work. Let's move on. (laughs) It sounds like Graham is improvising his, like, (laughs) elementary school presentation on Cheshire, (laughs) and I I really enjoy it. So thank you for that, Graham. Uh, Is is it in between the two cities? Yes. Yes, roughly. So basically anyone who plays in Liverpool or Manchester lives in Cheshire, and that's how they go. They all go to the same schools, and they all go to the same restaurants, and they're all pals. And it's it makes me sick as someone who like the early years of the Premier League. They have to be throwing pizza at each other there we go. and poking each other in the eye. It's not a real a real rivalry. Oh, great. All right. Well, while we wait for Graham to cool off, I will ask our next question from Michael Hastings Black. Graham, I'm coming to you for this one. We hear okay. a lot about players who can play many different positions, i.e. Kellen Acosta. Which players are known for their ability to play well in different systems? So pressing system, possession system, sitting and countering, etc. Graham, any names come to mind for you? 
Yeah, this was another uh, bit of a thought experiment for me because yes, it was. there are, as the question, as Michael's question poses, there are plenty of players that play in different positions and maybe not so many that sprung to mind for different systems. But I've got a, a few suggestions. So I'm going to Manchester City. They're getting a lot of airtime on this pod today. And I'm, I'm going for uh, Phil Foden. So Guardiola hasn't just used him in a number of different positions for City, but in a number of different ways that would lend itself to different systems as well. Not that City necessarily play those systems, but he's played uh, deep in a possession-heavy midfield unit. He's played out wide when he has to facilitate quick transitions. He's played as a number nine, where his primary role is actually off the ball and he's to lead the light, uh, lead the high press. He's played in a, a more orthodox central attacking uh, midfield role where he's meant to carry a goal threat and crash the box with late runs. I think Foden is generally something special and not just in terms of his technical ability, but his understanding of so many different roles and systems. And I think that is going to serve him well over his career because Southgate's England play a very different way to uh, Guardiola's City. And so he's able to kind of jump between the two and be a key figure for both teams. And he's been very good for England as, as just as he has been very good for, for Manchester City. Another example, I'm going to look to the continent. I would put forward Antoine Griezmann. So at Atleti, Griezmann has, he's, uh, he's primarily asked to, to press high and help out defensively. And that's one of the big reasons Simeone is so keen on him. But he also likes, um, how good he is on the counter-attack and how he can get in behind opposition back lines, how he drifts out wide, how he can play centrally. But then when he's playing for France, he sees more of the ball than he does for Atleti. There are moments of quick transition. France do have those moments. But they also play in front of opposition defences and Deschamps likes how Griezmann um, can operate there because he can produce something out of nothing. So for Atleti, he's trying to get in behind. Whereas for France, it's a, a lot of the time it's about shots from the edge of the box or passes from the edge of the box in front of an opposition defence. So that's quite a stark contrast in, in styles. And then another one um, that I think deserves a mention is uh, Angel Di Maria. So over the course of his career, he's played in possession-hungry teams. He's played in teams that play on the counter. He's been asked to high press, something he still does well to this day. He's played in central midfield. He's out wide to, to offer width. He's succeeded for pretty much every team in doing a number of different roles in a number of different systems, both at club level and international level, um, besides Louis van Gaal's United, and yeah. nobody succeeded for them. So I'm not <laughs> holding that against them. So that's just a few suggestions. Uh, I look forward to you asking Louis van Gaal about his time with Angel Di Maria yeah. on your future podcast. I'm assuming that will not be the way to start a good episode because he'll just end up angry. Uh, Joe, what about you? Who have you got on this list? So I have a handful as well. I, I struggle with this a little bit, the, the premise of this question, because I think players do deserve credit for playing in different styles. And so I, I like it. Another good thought experiment. But also, it tends to be a player's role and skill set that stays the same. It just, the, the, the context around them changes. It's, it's rare to see a player totally change what they do and completely remake themselves when they move from club to club or from a club setting to a national team setting. But setting that aside, I do think it's impressive that players can adapt to different environments over the course of their career and, and, and do some different things along the way. So the first one that came to mind for me is N'Golo Kante, who I think deserves a ton of credit for going and, and anchoring a Leicester City team and anchoring the midfield all the way to a Premier League title and now is playing under Thomas Tuchel, who wants to pass you to death and is is going out and playing through Real Madrid in the Champions League quarterfinals and stuff like that. So I think Kante deserves a lot of credit for 
the more on-ball things that he does that don't get discussed a lot. And I think a lot of those things were still present at Leicester, but they've, they've certainly been magnified, in, at least in terms of their frequency with Chelsea. Adama Traore is another one that comes to mind for me. Same skill set, but this Wolves team that he's been a part of for a while now and Xavi's Barcelona are completely different in how they want to go about winning soccer games. Adama's role is, again, the same dribble, 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 and then pass the ball, hopefully, to someone open in the box. But it's it's wonderful to watch in Barcelona. Again, very different. Thiago is another one that came to mind for me. He He's played for possession-heavy, pass-you-to-death club teams and also certainly now for Spain. It was maybe the, the biggest example of that right now on the world stage. Plays for Spain and also for Liverpool, who are much more direct and vertical and aggressive. There's a ton of similarities. Again, that's taken us back to the last question. But I think he he does different stuff and is able to adapt slightly. And then Yunus Musa is another one I thought of. Now, he does change positions from Valencia, where he plays usually on the right side of a four-man midfield line. He does change positions between that and the national team, where he plays as a number eight in a 4-3-3. But he also plays in a very different style. Valencia are very defensive. They attack in transition. Musa's attacking looks are mostly just him trying to drive the ball up the right wing and, and hopefully find a cross or find a cutback. And the U.S. men's national team doesn't really do that. Sure, they'll sit deep at times, but they're more aggressive. They're more possessive. They'll high press, you know, in the in the final third and things like that. So Musa's job is different. I think he's he's done an impressive. He's been impressive in adapting between those two environments so far, even as such a young player. Uh, those are some excellent answers. Gentlemen, two quick ones from me. Uh, I think you you all went different ways with it, and I think it's really interesting that the question, in my mind, lends itself to which player has moved around and played for a bunch of different clubs and a bunch of different systems, and that is one way it can go. But I also think, and Graham, this is something I think you were pointing at with Phil Foden, for example, you can also have a player who stays with one club but get gets asked to do different things within that club. And for me, that's one quadrado. A little bit different than Phil Foden because Quadrado has stayed at Juve but has had four, well, three different managers, one of them twice. But he starts with Allegri, then it's Sarri, then it's Pirlo, then it's Allegri. He has a different system at Chelsea, obviously, and plays a different style at Colombia. But I think that Quadrado is sort of an ever-present fixture in three different managers' Juve teams, all of whom had different looks. Sorry, Ball, especially yeah. uh, an outlier to what Allegri wanted to do, to what Pirlo was trying to do. So I think Quadrado's versatility uh, is, is a reason why I would include him. And then whenever I'm thinking of a player who can do a bunch of different things, we had the question once, if you could create a starting 11 of just one player, who would it be? My answer was Arturo Vidal. My answer to this question is Arturo Vidal. Looking at his club history, starts uh, starting with Leverkusen in Europe, that is. I think he starts with Colo Colo. Uh, but with Leverkusen, three different managers, including Japankis at the end. He goes to Juve, where he plays for Conte and Allegri. Goes to Bayern, where he plays for Pep and Chalotzi and Heinkes again. Barcelona under Ernesto Valverde is a different style of, of system. And then we get uh, moving to Inter under Antonio Conte and now Simone Inzaghi. Uh, it's... Similar styles at times, but I would argue that you get lots of different variations. And even Bayern, like going from Pep and the intensity of the system to Carlo Ancelotti's approach, which is a little bit more let the players play. I think that he has thrived in a number of different teams in a number of different roles is why I would have Arturo Vidal on my list. Any thoughts on either of those names? Great hair I think for Vidal. Just yeah. really impressive. <laughs> always, always. Ver- yeah, versatile in that way, too. Absolutely. Yeah, a man from the future. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was... Graham, do you know our name for that Chile team from 2014? 
I do not. They were the dystopian cyberpunks because that's what, <laughs> they. They were always like ta- like Gary Medell always had tape all over him. They had crazy yeah. haircuts and tattoos. They all looked like they were from the future and had been sent back in time to start a bike gang and also yeah. win the World Cup. They look like uh, Biff's biker gang yes. from Back to the Future Two. There we go. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, While I think about Biff and Back to the Future 2, we will take a break and be back to answer some more listener questions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We are answering your listener questions, and we have more to answer right now from Jacob Court. As the end of the season draws near, are there any clubs similar to Everton and AFC Wimbledon, shots fired at Ryan Bailey, who are in a surprising relegation fight? Joe, any other clubs beside Everton and AFC Wimbledon? So the first one that came to mind for me as I was looking through various tables across Europe was Hertha Berlin in the Bundesliga. Um, They've been in the Bundesliga since 2013-14. They finished as high as sixth in the league in 2016-17 but are dealing with some pretty sizable organizational turmoil and and ownership turmoil as well. Lars Windhorst, a well-known investment guru in Germany, uh, got a bunch of shares in the club back in 2019 and talked a big game about this being a big city club, and and Berlin is a big city, but things have not improved at all under Windhorst. They've gotten worse, if anything. They missed on some key signings, they sold off some key players, and now they're sitting in 17th, second to last in the Bundesliga It's a pretty big deal. It's been almost a decade, like I said, since they've been down. And Berlin is a massive city. We keep talking about Hertha Berlin. Well, not all the time, but in in past listener questions Mm -hmm. episodes, we've had questions about, you know, what cities have sort of an underwhelming soccer scene. Maybe not in terms of atmosphere, but in terms of the quality of some of the teams, the professional teams in that area. And Berlin is always one that we come back to because they, Hertha Berlin have been a good team, but they, they don't seem to properly represent, and I'm not trying to take shots at them here, but they don't seem to properly represent the amount of people and and the size of their city. And now with that team potentially heading down to the second Bundesliga, I think that would be a pretty major thing. The only other, the only other one I have here quickly is Bordeaux in Ligue 1 because of the history that they have. They have a bunch of French league titles. They have just a lot of history, both in France and in Europe. They barely escaped relegation last season and they're in financial peril and potentially headed down this season, 19th in Liga owner uh, Gerard Lopez Taylor also owns Bovista in Portugal who is hey. the team that last I, I checked still hasn't paid FC Dallas or Reggie Cannon so Yay. you can sort of get an idea of the relative financial pictures of both Bovista and certainly Bordeaux by association there uh, Graham I will ask you if you have any thoughts on Bordeaux or more likely Hertha Berlin so Hertha is a is a team and a club that I've written quite a bit about this season because as Joe mentions high expectations 
uh, investment, big managerial appointments. So Jurgen Klinsmann was there for about a month, I think, last season before oh, yeah. before he left. Now Felix Magat is is in charge there. Um, and yeah, so they're an interesting case. I think the Bundesliga in general is an interesting case because you also have, I have to mention uh, Gladbach as well, who have managed to get themselves kind of out of trouble recently. I think actually they're now up to 11th, so they're they're probably safe. But until a few weeks ago, they were they were in freefall and they were getting sucked into trouble down down the bottom of the table. This is a team that recently has qualified for the Champions League and Marco Rosa did good things there. So that was very surprising to see them down there. I also went to, to, to France. I didn't mention Bordeaux because I was aware of all their kind of financial troubles that they, they've yeah. had. So maybe coming into this season where you had the collapse of the TV deal in France, which caused a lot of uh, clubs trouble, it, it's maybe not surprising to see them down there because they seem to have been affected more than any other. But I also had uh, Saint-Étienne, who have been a lot poorer this season than many people envisaged they would be. Last season, they finished comfortably mid-table. I went back to the start of the season. I will admit, I don't know a great deal about the, their team in terms of how they play or even a lot of the players, but I went back to the start of the season to look at what they were talking about as expectations. And they were talking about challenging for Europa League and Europa Conference League qualification. So for them to be um, in the bottom three and facing relegation from Ligue 1 at the moment, that that's pretty surprising. And that is a you know that's a that's a very historic French club, a, a former superpower of of French football. So for them to go down to to Ligue 2 would be would be quite quite shocking. And then in Scotland, I have to mention um, a Scottish Championship team. So the second tier in Scotland, you have Dunfermline Athletic, who are si- sitting second bottom. That has been a relatively big story in Scotland uh, because Dunfermline are typically a top top flight team. They finished uh, fourth in the Championship last season. They were expected to challenge for promotion again. They spent big in Scottish terms on players. A lot of players came into that club that you would say are top flight players. They appointed John Hughes, who is a top flight manager, uh, all intents and purposes. And uh, now they're scrambling to stay in the division. They've been scrambling to stay in the division all season. Nothing seems to be working at all. So in Scotland, that is uh, certainly an example I'd put forward. Graham, I know I know that Jacob asked us about relegation, but can we get an update on Arbroth? Uh, I yeah. probably butchered that pronunciation, but the amateur team that's that's making, or at least was making a push, up to the top flight? Yeah, so our both unfortunately have lost top spot. However, they are only four points behind Kilmarnock. I think Kilmarnock are gonna are gonna win it because actually I think that they might be one win away. But our both are nine points clear of third place in the Scottish Championship table. So they they now go into the playoffs. Um and in the playoffs, I think most people fancy their chances. At the moment, they are very comfortably the second best team in the Scottish Championship. So they are probably the playoff favourites. They will play a team that finishes 11th in the Scottish Premiership table. They, they, that's the t- if they make the final, that's who they'll play. So maybe that team is better than our both. But it's definitely not over for them. The fairy tale is not over. And I'm, I'm quite excited for that. They're, they're going to get like big one-off games as well. They're going to feel like quite quite an event. So the fairy tale is still alive, Joseph Lowry. And, and as far as, sorry, I'm asking a lot of weird questions about how this works. So obviously the, the winner of the championship, which is the second division in Scotland, automatically yeah. is promoted then right. what's the playoff structure is it is it four teams then playing and it's a 14 bracket that goes down to one that then plays that 11th place team in the oh. first division joe this is this is so complicated i'm not even sure you want to know <laughs> okay. this okay so second third and fourth in the scottish championship go into a playoff system okay. third and fourth play each other in the semi-final right the winner of that game plays second place in the championship which is looking like it's going to be our broth so, and then the winner of that game plays the team that finished 11th in the Scottish Premiership. 
Did okay. we follow all that? Yeah. So, and then as far as the premiership goes, I'm, I'm looking at the table right now. Is it one team that's automatically relegated and then the 11th place team may or may not be relegated sort of like Bundesliga style? Correct, yeah. So at the moment, that's St. Johnson. They look like they're going to be the 11th place team. So if our both were to make the final, it's highly likely it's going to be St. Johnson that they'll play in that final. And the winner of that gets the place in the Premiership. Thank you, Graham. I learned. I am going to move us away from the Scottish Championship <laughs> Darn it, and then right back to the Scottish Championship because, Graham, I'm really interested in Dunfermline for a moment uh, because the, like knowing nothing about them, the way you explained it, the way you set it up is that it does feel like everything should be going well. New yeah. manager who is is of like the right caliber. They spent money. Seems like they should be there and yet they're not. Do- what is to blame, do you think? That that is a very difficult question. Difficult question for me to answer because I don't even think Dunfermline Athletic really know what's <laughs> what's going on. So as I say, they they spent they spent big in the summer. If I'm going through their squad now, I think Dom Thomas came in. He's certainly a player who's um, good enough for the top flight. Effie Ambrose, who was at Celtic and Hibs until recently, Livingston as well. He's good enough for, for the top flight. Liam Polworth, Dennis Mehmet was at Dundee United. Ryan Dow. Th- these are I all know all these names. All yeah, the, every single I, one. I imagine these none of these mm-hmm. players are players. Graham Dorans, maybe remember him from the Premier League. He's at he's at uh, Dunfermline right now. He was at West Brom for a number of years, and then he was at Rangers. Now he's at Dunfermline. So their wage bill, I think, Dunfermline is the second largest in the Scottish Championship behind Kilmarnock, who only just got relegated from the Premiership. So it's very surprising that they are they are down there. Another club that's a bit like that is Falkirk, to be honest. Um, and those two clubs are rivals, so that's not ideal for that part of the part of the world. But Falkirk are actually in League One, and they've been down there for four years, and they keep spending big. Lee Griffiths plays for Falkirk now, and nothing seems to be working. So, yeah, I'm afraid I don't really have an answer for that. Um, it's just maybe poor recruitment and bad management, but they really should be doing a lot better. I like that you could have been making up most of those names and Joe and I would have just been like, yeah, of course, that yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. that's going to make the difference. Uh, all right. I think this has been our Scottish Championship Roundup. Uh, one uh, <laughs> club for me who I think similar to Gladbach, Graham, the way you explained them, not really relegation threatened, but definitely a disappointing season and have flirted with it at times would be Galatasaray, one of my favorite clubs. Uh, they are safe in the Turkish Super League. The Turkish Super League sends down four clubs, but they are only three spots from being in the relegation zone. They're 12 points ahead, though, so they should be safe, uh, but a very disappointing team uh, season for a team that usually expects to be challenging for the title. Uh, so uh, maybe not the best of seasons for Galatasaray. And then I also had uh, Hertha Berlin for all the reasons we've already mentioned, but it's just insane to see how much money they spend only a couple seasons ago and now to see them where they are we'll see how the rest of the season plays out in the meantime another question coming from cody a why does it seem like watching film is a relatively new thing in soccer you mentioned in your sir alex ferguson 101 episode that video analysis was a thing his staff revolutionized but i've also heard in other places how video analysis was used by other innovators in the game additionally watching film doesn't seem to be a thing every soccer player does this is strange to my american brain since watching film is important for every american sport Even at levels as low as middle school football and basketball, NFL film analysis goes back to the 1960s with uh, Vince Lombardi, and then other sports followed shortly after. Is there a reason, Graham, it took soccer so long to follow this trend? I would say to start, Graham, you can take issue with any part of this question if you want to, Mm because I think there's a lot going on here and there's a lot to be discussed. Yeah, so so first thing to clarify is I do actually think every elite level player now will watch 
Phil, mm-hmm. I can't imagine there's a team in the Premier League, for ex- for instance, or really any top flight in Europe or MLS that that doesn't have their squad watching tape in at least one session between between matches. It's probably more than one session, to be honest. But I, I think about Scottish teams that aren't at a particularly high level. Dunfermline, Falkirk, those teams that just mentioned in the Championship, they'll they'll do video analysis. So I think I think things have changed. Um, I think it's certainly true that soccer in general was slower to adopt common analytical practices, whether that be through uh, data collection or video analysis than most American sports was. And I think part of that is, I've got a few theories on this, right? And I don't think any of these are kind of hard, solid answers. But I think part of that is down to the nature of soccer. I think it's tougher to analyze soccer because of its fluid nature. I'm slightly out of my depth here because I don't know baseball or American football all that well, or even basketball. I am a fair weather basketball fan. But it seems like actions in those sports can be charted much more efficiently because there are isolated plays. And that's not really the case in soccer where everything flows into everything else. So it can be difficult to analyze certain segments. I think another part is down to technology. So before the Sky Premier League uh, era, TV coverage of uh, English football in this particular instance was was very limited and it was just, it was similar across Europe. So only a handful of, of games were broadcast live and the ones that had only highlights shown, so you'd have a lot of games on Match of the Day or, or similar shows like that, they were filmed by a, sim- a single camera often and that makes... Uh, video analysis quite difficult so when the technology improved and you had multi-camera angles uh, multi-camera angles and uh, videoing of all matches in the league in in the same way then I think analysis caught up a little bit and so I don't think it's a coincidence that if you look at when that changed in English football in the Premier League you would say it was maybe about the mid-90s which is a couple years after Sky completely completely revolutionized how that league was being broadcast this is where my answer becomes maybe slightly more of a discussion. I think you also need to understand that until the Premier League era, there was a certain culture around football. It was, it was yep. a place dominated by proper football men who didn't like to be yeah. told that maybe their preconceptions weren't right or that some kid with a laptop, Joe, <laughs> could tell them things yeah. about their team no, that they true. didn't know themselves. Um, and that attitude still lingers on to a certain yeah. extent in terms of some of the coverage of the sport. Graham Souness, who's now a, now a pundit, openly says that he doesn't like stats. It's such a weird thing to say because the stats are there whether you look at them or not. You can't deny their existence, but that sort of stance gives you an insight into an attitude that was widespread across the sport until, I think, about the middle of the 90s. So that's just that's just my opinion. As I say, that latter part is maybe more of a discussion and I'm interested yeah. to, to hear what you guys think. Graham, I'm really, really glad you mentioned that. Well, both points, but the, especially the second one, because I, I do think sometimes, especially for uh, British people, I think that is just more so an accepted thing that like sometimes it fails to get mentioned. Because I think over here, there's this idea that soccer, I think soccer fandom on the whole maybe skews a little bit younger and maybe a little bit more to the left. And so I think there's this idea that it's like this multicultural game where you get people from all different backgrounds and managers from all different backgrounds. And there's this embracing of new technology and new ideas. And I and I agree mm. with you. I think that that's the case sometimes, but not really that common across like older generations. And I think you're at, like the Graham Soonest one is an excellent point. I think you see that a lot. Even Roy Keane will talk about how like, oh, I don't know about all this data. In my day, we just worked hard and outworked the opponent. Yeah. Um, and I think that there is more of a, 
a reaction to the implementation of technology, you can see it in how much people hate VAR and compare it with how long uh, replay has been in the NFL. Like I, th- I think you can see those two differences and you can see how there is some hesitancy to that technology. And I think you're also right, Graham, that you don't have as many uh, just set plays. I remember when we would use video analysis, it was basically we would practice patterns we would practice the striker checks in ball into his feet he lays it off first time out wide to an advancing fullback then he recycles his run the two central like you you practice that over and over and over again then you watch the footage and see if it worked or how it broke down or what could have been done better but you're not really analyzing plays or you run here then he runs there and then this thing happens and i think that's where that was kind of the limit of video technology for a good long while obviously it has uh, broadened and become much more varied in the modern era. Uh, but I think those are two great arguments. Joe, I've talked a while, so I will leave it to you to do some talking of your own. I think soccer, in so many ways, is still in the dark age of information. And it's it's changing, but I think there's a reason why we've sort of tied, and you guys have done this, not me, which is, is surprising because I was going to do it. We've sort of tied data and stats along with video because they're they're both data, right? Data is just information. It's information that you're gathering from different contexts and surroundings. So I think there is a natural connection between these two things. A lot of teams now do, of course, go in and watch film as a team, and they'll go through it and, and spend at least some time watching clips that illustrate a particular concept that didn't go well last week or or they'll look at something that they're trying to implement this week and provide positive examples. Usually you'll get that. Now the question is, in a lot of senses, how long are you spending doing that? And Jesse Marsh, to bring him up again, is someone who's made it pretty clear throughout his coaching career that film is important. And he spends a longer time than I think a lot of players are used to. Not even that long. It feels like to me, as an American who would be more used to watching film on a much more regular basis. But it is, it's slow going for integrating yeah. those things into soccer because I think of, of what Graham mentioned, of the mindset that has been the prevailing mindset in soccer for a long time of I don't need people to tell me what what I don't know because I already know everything, right? I don't need to have my opinion changed. I don't need to have my opinion challenged, which is something that you risk when you look at video of games, when you watch stuff again, or when you look at numbers that, that might not align with what you thought was going on. So there is certainly that very old school mindset that's been attached to every sport at one point. I think it's changing, but it is still very real. Another interesting part of this question is, I, I took it when uh, when Cody's talking about you know every player watching film. I actually took that to mean players watching film on an individual level, which I'm pretty sure is not what was meant, but that's that's how I first interpreted this question. And that's always been strange to me because while every player will be exposed to film in a team setting, players don't really, or at least not all players, watch film on their own or or like like have a one on one sit down with a coach. Taylor, you talk about you know Tim Weah and Greg Berhalter yeah. sitting down to watch film. That's not something that happens with every player. Maybe in a national team setting it does because national team coaches have so much time to twiddle their thumbs. But on the club level, players don't get that type of time and exposure and, and someone pouring into their game. It just doesn't happen. There was an article uh, a couple of years ago now, and I was trying to find it, but I couldn't. But it was an article about this this guy who was basically a film contractor who worked with specific players. He would get in contact with them and work with them to analyze their own film outside of the club setting. So the, the player that was mostly featured in that article was Stefan DeVry at Inter. Uh, and, and this guy worked with DeVry at Inter and improved his game in a, in a couple of metrics that they had established up until Conte basically told him to stop. Because the, the challenge with that type of setting 
is that coaches want to have the influence on their players. They want to make sure that outside influences aren't telling them to do things that aren't aligned with the team goal or aligned with how they want that positional profile to operate. So that's that's challenging. I think there's still a place for those those outside yeah. voices, but I also just think coaches and, and staffs and teams should spend more money and get one extra guy in there or one extra person on their coaching staff and have that play have that person's job just be to work with players to watch film and, and yeah. be an individual film consultant the, the name's got to have some workshopping there but i think there is in conclusion the, the end of my ramble here is i think there's room for more of this i think cody's right to an extent with his question it's not as prevalent in soccer the digital age is still i guess sort of a new thing that soccer teams and, and people that have decision-making power it's still a thing that they're trying to come to grips with or, or rather maybe they're not trying to come to grips with it joe it's, it's interesting that you mention um players being taken on an individual basis to look at tape because the first thing that comes to mind when you when you talk about that is the case of Oliver Burke who is a, a Scotland international has bounced around the English leagues that has been in the Premier League for a long time and he moved from Nottingham Forest to RB Leipzig as a teenager for something like 15 million pounds and it was Ralph Ranić who was the the coach at, at Leipzig at that time and basically um he was ta- he talked about how he sat down with Burke a player who'd played at a good level in England as a teenager and looked at his game and showed him game tape and they did a lot of analysis together. And Ralph Ranić said that was the first time that anyone had ever yep. done that with him. And he was, I think he was about 21 years old at the time. He described him as a player without a hard drive, is how he described Oliver Burke, which was a little bit harsh on Oliver Burke, but it kind of... It, to me, that that reflected a culture, particularly in English football. Maybe it isn't in the Premier League, but Nottingham Forest are obviously a championship club. And if you just go down a little bit, I think that proper football man culture still exists to this day. And that yeah. was kind of a, a reflection of that. I think it does too, Graham. And my final point on this one would be, you mentioned Oliver Burke, you mentioned his age there. And I remember switching from playing soccer in college to being a place kicker in college. And you go to uh, football, American football, where there is just so much more emphasis on video analysis, and there has been because you're watching plays over and over and over again to say, you should have done this here, you should have gotten closer here, whatever it might be, but it's baked into playing football. It is a known thing that we're going to spend an entire day, basically, or an entire like practice session watching tape. And if you know that's part of what the game is going to be, what practice is going to be, it's built into your preparation. You know we're going to sit in this dark room and watch multiple hours of us making mistakes or making good plays, but usually making mistakes. Um, And you know that's going to be the case. If you are a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, whatever, not trying to fire shots, it's just the case that like you're going to get bored if it's not a thing that you are expecting to do. And if you're sitting in a room for two hours watching tape, you'll probably pay attention to some extent. But if it's not a thing that you are used to doing, a thing that is kind of you're accustomed to, it's it's just going to eventually, I think it's harder to to stay focused if it's not sort of baked into you. If I tell Joe, you got to go to the gym for three hours this morning, but that's not a thing you normally do, it's going to feel like a much bigger like feat than if than if you do that every single day. Joe, maybe you do go to I the gym I usually go for six day. hours every there morning. There we go. So. There we go. <laughs> It'll be difficult uh, in what... a different way because I'll just be craving more. <laughs> Uh, the Joe that we use for our broadcasts is a stand-in. Joe actually looks like Dave Bautista. I should have added that. We just It's too intimidating oh. for listeners. But yeah, so I think it is changing, but I think it's just yeah. – it's an evolving thing, and, and we'll see where it goes. But I think ultimately 
the, like players have watched footage of themselves for many years. It's just how advanced it has gotten with geolocation and distance covered sure. and heat maps and all that. I think that has evolved it to the next level. Yeah, I have a question for, for you two who, who might have a, a greater insight into American sports than I do. See um, American sports, like athletes, like NFL players or baseball players or basketball players, do they spend a lot of time at like the training center or the camp? Because I'm thinking of baseball films, right? I know nothing about baseball, but it seems like they spend a lot of time kind of just spending their day at at the training camp or mm-hmm. and with football players with soccer players it, there is this expectation that they'll be in in the morning they'll do their training they'll go to the gym and then they're kind of finished by lunchtime and i just wonder whether f- uh, soccer players feel that they don't they don't have the time even though they probably do whereas like in american sports they commit their whole it's like a nine to five job they're there yeah. at the training center from nine to five and so the, the the coaching staff can fit in a lot more video analysis is there anything there or am i am, have i got nothing there i think no i th- I think you're. I think there's something there. Sorry, Joe. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to agree with you. I think there is something there. I don't know that it's a nine to five, but especially I think about preseason. So I've been around a club, a soccer team during preseason, and it's it's pretty much just like the rest of the season in that exact rhythm that you're talking about. Graham, you show up in the morning, you do training, you go to the gym, maybe in between or, or before training, you watch 15 minutes of film a couple of days a week, and then you're done, and then you play a preseason game on Saturday. For the NFL, like training camp is a much more strenuous process, both because it's more physically demanding in yep. in certain ways, but also because you're taking on so much more information, specific information. And that's not something that I think soccer necessarily needs to change because they're inherently different sports. I don't know as much about what the cadence is like in basketball or in baseball, but I, I do think there is a larger amount of time, at least in some of those sports, that players are spending in and around the team. Yeah, I think on a basic level... Your your average playbook is like 100 pages, I think. So if you've got to memorize every single aspect of what you're supposed to do in every single play, I, having no background in that, I remember one time I had to fill in as a field player and had no idea what I was supposed to do because it's all just this like abbreviated code of like, you do this and this and this and this. And I was just like, so stand here and don't know what I'm doing? Perfect. Got it. Uh, <laughs> and that was not what they needed, it turned out. And that's why I did not play no. uh, much What position, on the field. Taylor? What was it? <laughs> I was my position was get hit real hard, I think, is what I played. Um, But so, Graham, I think you you then have to study that playbook. You're there getting treatment. If you're doing two a days, you're probably not leaving the facility at all. So I, I do think there is much more of a this is your job. You're expected to do it nine to five or even more and then you have a, an off season where you can do whatever you want and then it is an extended off season um much more so than uh european soccer for sure but yeah i, th- I think that probably is true that there's an expectation that you're going to commit more time to it and i think that stands out to me because we'll hear sometimes about managers like oh he's putting him through two a days they've installed sleeping pods so that they can stay at the facility how innovative and it's just sort of like yeah that's how it works you keep them there as much as you can you get everybody on the same page and then you have a very good unified team theoretically unless it's a bad coach and a bad approach in which case you have a bunch of people who are basically captive and hate what they're doing and that doesn't really work out so well which is basically how you get the cleveland browns uh so on that uh shot fired at the cleveland browns we'll take one more break and then we will be back to answer our final two questions this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com 
slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. A question from William Farr. Since Ryan Bailey hates World Cup qualifying, lots of Ryan Bailey-specific questions with Ryan yeah, not here. People love uh, Ryan. Since, <laughs> since Ryan Bailey hates World Cup qualifying and international breaks so much, what are some ways to shake things up and make it more interesting? Could we reconfigure confederations to get new exciting matchups? For example, North, Central, and South America merge to form a new America's Confederation. Then the Caribbean Islands and Oceania join to make the Islands Confederation. The Arab and North African countries break away to form their own confederation. Should we have a big country World Cup and a small country World Cup, like a Champions League, Europa League dynamic, any other out-of-the-box suggestions to get more competitive and intriguing matchup? My question for William is, are you Gianni Infantino? <laughs> and is this the start of you pitching a 48-team every two years World Cup? Uh, that That is kind of what I feel like we're getting towards here with William's question. Nice try, Gianni. Uh, Joe, <laughs> a- any thoughts on this one? Any out-of-the-box ideas for how we could expand or improve World Cup qualifying and international breaks? Well, to help Ryan out, you know, he, he doesn't really enjoy international breaks and World Cup qualifying. He's just all about, you know, England playing in big tournaments because my and understanding losing is... losing in big tournaments. Yeah, now. yeah, that's absolutely true. My understanding is that is that Ryan's just sort of bored by those things because England typically don't have any trouble getting through. Yeah. So I think we should just take all of England's good players and suddenly England versus Andorra is a fun game. It's an in- intriguing yes. matchup. That till we draw Ryan and we just take all, all the toys away. But on, on a real I note, I knew you would be, Graham. I knew you would be. Taylor probably too. <laughs> on a real note, it is hard for me to envision any of these things happening, which I guess is not the, the premise of this question, but we just really need like planes that can go a lot faster than they can now for any of this to become feasible like the travel if you're trying to reconfigure some of the geographical alignments and the confederations that fifa already has canada traveling down to play like chile or brazil Mm -hmm. is a is just brutal right there's so much brutal travel that already occurs in soccer in, in this part of the world especially but adding even longer trips is is going to be very challenging so I don't know that that's feasible. I don't think I'm a huge fan of messing with the confederations that FIFA has, partially because of the travel and also partially because I think the smaller countries just end up getting the short end of the stick pretty much every time. If you, if you mess with things to get better matchups between big teams, then you end up with the islands just sort of playing against each other, and, and maybe that helps them grow. But I also think you lose a lot of the exposure and, and experience that comes with playing against bigger, more established teams. So... I'm not sure that's the thing I'm a huge fan of, but I, I, I would like to have, and I don't know if this is feasible, I like the secondary World Cup idea. I wouldn't label it big country and small country World Cup, but the Europa League World Cup I think would be incredibly entertaining. Like this year we could have Egypt and Algeria and Nigeria from CAF. We could have Panama from CONCACAF. We could have Colombia and Chile from CONMEBOL. We could have Italy and a handful of the European teams from UEFA that didn't make it in. I mean, I think that would be really entertaining TV. Whether or not coaches and players and federations would want to do that, I I don't know. But I like that idea probably more than any of the other ways I could think about promoting some more interesting and different international matchups. Joe, I, 
you you've got me thinking now. I like this idea of like if we're gonna do a secondary competition, maybe we go the U.S. Women's National Team model and we go with the She Believes Cup and we just have it that like there's one year we're gonna do World Cup, then we're gonna do a tournament like the like two years later that's the your your confederation so the Euros, uh, Gold Cup, Copa America, and then. In between those years, maybe there's an invitational summer where, like, you're allowed to create your own tournaments and invite whomever you want. And sure. then we can get some sort of, like, FIFA video game created tournaments where we've got random teams playing against each other. Maybe that's one way we could do it is create smaller individual, like, private competitions almost where you've only got eight teams competing. But maybe it is the the Islands tournament. And then you do get this sort of one-off one where you play different teams from different areas that you wouldn't otherwise play. And maybe they're of the same level so okay i'm I'm into some kind of like private regional uh tournaments or a secondary world cup something like that graham what about you so if we really want to shake things up there's a show i got served a show on uh, netflix recently the algorithm pushed it to me it's called is it cake and you have to figure out (laughs) whether real (laughs) items are cake or not so i say every so often for a qualifier you just throw in a cake ball and see what happens and see how long (laughs) people take to figure out that it's not actually a ball it's cake Graham, how, oh. how much drinking did you do last night before you came up with that answer? <laughs> well, no, no more than any usual. I would oh, say. Graham, that is so good. That is so, right, so good. So Graham's idea for how to reconfigure confederations to get new exciting matchups is to introduce a kickball. Oh yes, my gosh! Correct. <laughs> Guess my vote. Mine too. I mean, me three. I think the obvious answer here is that Ryan Bailey should just stop supporting England and support the United States. Like, he he loves Charlotte. He drives a Mustang. Like, just yeah. just support the yeah. U.S. where qualifying is more up and down, and you will get sort of a longer term, a drawn out thing where you care about qualifying a bit more. You don't get as many useless international friendlies. I, I don't understand. Just just abandon yeah. England, Ryan. Come support the USA. He- he is the most uh, American of the four of us, which is quite oh, yeah. remarkable. Yeah, undeniably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, because I think Joe and I, if we went to the Hard Rock Cafe in Rome or like sought out a Starbucks in Rome, I feel like we would both immediately feel like we were being ugly American yes, tourists. Yes, correct. Uh, whereas Ryan, I guess, can get away with it in his dad sneakers and I'm <laughs> going to assume braided belt. I hope. And his visor. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. All right. So uh, anything else for William's question? Uh, Graham, any other sort of Netflix inspired uh, solutions to this one? No, I mean, I did have a a serious suggestion. Oh, that'd be fine. Uh, Not not that the cake ball wasn't serious, but um, yeah, just just fewer windows. I think the number of breaks doesn't really help anyone because it breaks up the the club season and it doesn't really give any momentum to the international game either. So I like the idea of having qualification tournaments for Mm. tournaments, Mm. if that makes any sense, in the off-summer between tournaments. I've used the word tournaments a lot there. But um, I understand that logistically that might be difficult, but in terms of creating the the best sporting spectacle, it's either that or the cake. I I think there's that's a really great shout, Graham, because even from the logistics standpoint, maybe it's a little bit more challenging. But at the same time, like Africa is an enormous continent. And to have like like the concerns we would have about Canada flying to Peru, uh, Joe, I share those concerns. But it is something that African teams have to deal with. If you get Algeria drawn into a group with South Africa pretty hefty plane ride. And so if you do have sort of centralized qualifying where it's a tournament, you're going to get more eyes on it. You're going to get more interest in it because it's so many games in quick succession. That does feel like a thing we might end up getting before too long, especially because international breaks can be a little bit disruptive because they were so packed this last time. Maybe maybe we will see some experimentation there. Joe, would you be into that? 
Uh, yes, I think, I think, I, I think, I don't know, Taylor, I kind of like the international breaks. I like Mm -hmm. the frequency of them because I enjoy international soccer and in large part more than I enjoy Mm -hmm. club soccer. So I'd be a little sad for that to leave the, the everyday rhythms of soccer that we have now. But at the same time, I can totally sympathize with it constantly disrupting club play. And I think there would be value in doing it in the summer. I just wonder, all yeah. those coaches are going to have to pick up a part-time gig because suddenly their job just got a lot easier yeah. and a lot less time-consuming. Good point, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, Joe, but when you say the freak, you enjoy the frequency of the international breaks, one of my issues with the international breaks is I have to think, okay, what happened in the last international break? What, like who? So the frequency, for me, isn't frequent enough hmm. for it to build any kind of momentum and it feels like it, even for international it's very stop start so it just makes the club game and the international game like very stop start and if we could find a way that solves that for both maybe it's just fewer windows maybe maybe it's like two windows instead of four or five in a sure. season maybe that fixes it yeah but yeah that's a frustration for me i think just every other year one year is a club year the next year's an international year and we just one have year's players a cake play year. yeah one year's a cake year that, yeah, forget it, actually. Yeah, let's just do that. Let's just have every year be a cake year, and then I think we solved the problem. I like every year's like been a lot. cake year for the last few years, for me, to be honest. <laughs> Certainly since the pandemic started. <laughs> um, Graham, to your point about them being so spread out, it's hard to remember. That's why I, I keep notebooks the way I do, so I can flip back and be like, right, what happened last time? Because I, when I used to have loose pages of notepaper, those were gone almost immediately, and then I would instantly forget what had happened. So... Uh, diligent note-taking, I think, is the solution. William slash Gianni, uh, I hope you consider your question <laughs> answered. Final question comes from Andy Jordan. Can you get Graham to explain his theory of midfield because he's mentioned it a few times and I still don't get it? I'm going to try, Andy. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, hey, Graham, <laughs> if you have a second, can you explain your theory of midfield? You've mentioned it a few times, and I have it on good authority. There's at least one person out there who remains confused. Okay, sure. I'll try and explain oh, thanks, it. So thanks. It's- it's quite a reductive theory because obviously you might want a slightly different profile of midfield depending on your style of play or the team you're you're facing, the opposition team you're facing. But if I'm building a team from scratch, I am looking for three key elements in my midfield unit. I'm looking for protection, I'm looking for control, and I'm looking for creativity. And my theory goes that if you go through the best midfield units in the modern game, the ones that teams were built around, you will find those three qualities. So let's take the current Real Madrid midfield trio. So Casemiro, I would say he's he's the one that offers protection. Tony Cruz, he offers control. Luka Modric, he, uh, Luka Modric, sorry, he's creativity. Barcelona's midfield under Pep. Busquets, protection. Xavi, control. Iniesta, creativity. Tuchel's midfield at, at Chelsea. I know Kante is being used in a slightly different way, but he offers a lot of protection. Jorginho, control. Mount, creativity. And as I say, it's reductive because there's, there is overlap. Modric also offers offers Real Madrid control. So did Iniesta. Casemiro can create create for uh, for Real Madrid at times. So it's not that one player can only provide one quality. In fact, you you probably wouldn't want that. You would want overlap between the, the, the three or two or whatever, however uh, big your unit is. But at central p- pillars, that's what I want from a midfield unit. I want uh, protection, control and creativity. I, I'm... I'm sort of fascinated by this because it does go the opposite way as well. It explains how you can have a solid midfield, but also looking at, say, Manchester United, if you have a midfield of McTominay, Bruno, and Pogba, I would say McTominay would be your protection. I would say Bruno is your creativity. But is Pogba your control or is no. he your creativity? It, it's it's tough. And you do see where that sort of that balance breaks down a little bit. I'm trying to think of other obvious examples yeah. where there's an imbalance and it's not quite working. 
So there are, I think there are plenty of examples of ones that, that don't work. There are some examples of, of teams that don't maybe have those three elements nailed in their midfield and it still works. So the prime example for, for me is Liverpool. So you have protection with Fabinho, you have, I would say, control with Thiago, but who's, who's the, the real creator? You would say maybe Thiago is a deep lying creator, but in terms of having someone like a Kevin De Bruyne as Man City do, I, I don't think Liverpool have that player. Maybe when Curtis Jones plays, they do. But it, it it can work, as I say. It's a reductive theory. It's not it's not hard a hard and fast rule. But it's kind of the thing that I can separate my mid, the the midfield units that I really like tends to have those three qualities. Joe, is there a midfield in Major League Soccer that comes to mind when we're talking about these three qualities of protection, control, and creativity? Um, I think I think if you're looking at this idea, it's easiest in Major League Soccer because there aren't a lot of really complete number eights who can mm-hmm. do the creating in a way that Luka Modric can even in, in even in a, a semblance of that way. Um, I don't think there's anyone that can really do that at the number eight spot. If so, they're not going to be major league soccer for long. So I think <laughs> you're really looking at a team that plays with a double pivot with a number 10 in front, right? You're looking at I'm trying to think through the best number 10s. Maybe looking at the Columbus crew with Lucas Zellerian as their, their number 10. He's their creative presence. Then you have, Artur and Darlington Nagby, Artur maybe does a little bit more of the the protecting, and you have Nagby doing the controlling. That's certainly what he's known for. I, I don't know that that's the ideal midfield group in, in MLS, but they're a pretty strong example. Really, most teams that play with a 4-2-3-1 or just any 2-1 shape will have some of that. Cincinnati with Lucho Acosta certainly as their creator, and then two players behind him that share that responsibility. Minnesota United as well. The New England Revolution don't always play with that 2-1 structure, but they have certainly at times with Carles Hill doing that job. So I think we do do see teams try to fill those profiles in MLS and certainly all around the world as well. I think it's interesting, Graham, when you're talking about you know Real Madrid and Barcelona. So we'll think about Barcelona right now, even with Busquets as their number six, and then usually with Frankie de Jong and, and Pedri as the two eights. That's Xavi's, in my view, first choice midfield. When you compare and contrast that with Real Madrid, with Casemiro as the six, he is their protector in a very classic running kind of sense. And then you have Modric as the creator and Kroos as the controller. I think that's the prototypical midfield in the way you're describing it. Barcelona do have those attributes, but they do it in a very different way. Busquets provides protection, but he also provides control. I know you're talking about that overlap, mm-hmm. but he's, he provides protection in a much different way than Casemiro does. You know, Busquets has talked about how you know, when it comes to him defending big spaces, he's not going to do well. But when it comes to him defending small spaces, he's probably the best in the world and one of the best we've ever seen. So it's an interesting way to think about midfields and, and how they impact games. It's also an interesting way to think about profiles because Busquets brings you, at the end of the day, something very similar that Casemiro brings you, but he does it in such a different way and the team structure is built to have him succeed in a way that if Busquets is playing for Real Madrid, man, I cannot wait to talk about that Madrid-Chelsea game tomorrow because Madrid, I guess, spoiler alert, they were all over the place. Like, Ancelotti has totally given up on any sort of tactical plan for this team. They are vibes only. (laughs) They're man-oriented in defense, and they're getting pulled apart, and Chelsea pulled them apart over and over again and deserved to win yesterday. They deserved to win that tie, and they didn't, and I'm thrilled because it's going to be wild to watch Madrid continue. But you put Busquets in this Real Madrid team for the better part of the last five, eight, ten years— He's not going to be the same player that we know today. So I don't know. It, it just, Graham, this conversation is an interesting platform and this midfield theory that you have is an interesting platform to discuss how teams are built, how they're constructed, how they want to play, and even looking beyond the midfield to talk about those kinds of things. 
Graham, uh, my final question would be, if you go with a 442 diamond, uh, do you add a fourth uh, category or do you double up on one of the three that you already have in existence? So if I were to have a fourth category and this isn't as easily defined as the other three, I think, I I think sort of energy would be one. So if I think of like... (laughs) Wild card. card, Just say wild card. Wild card, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wild card. Yeah. Energy can be wild card though. Like, I don't know. I think there's some, some examples of that. That's true. So uh, yeah, I think I think energy um, would be kind of fourth category, but I, it's not as central a pillar, pillar as the other three because I think you can have energetic players who uh, who are creative. So Luka Modric, for example, I would say is an energetic player who is who is a creative. Um, Joe, you mentioned uh, Casemiro there. He is an energetic player who is a protector. So it, it's it's not quite as easy to pigeonhole those those energetic players. But if I look at Liverpool's midfield, which I've already mentioned, maybe Naby, Naby Keita fits into that energetic mould where he's not a controller, he's not a protector, he's not a creative, but he's kind of a go-between guy who can lead the lead the high press and and kind of close down opponents, but also drive the ball forward as well. So he's he would maybe be an example of of that sort of player. That that's how I would think about that. I will forever shoehorn a reference in to Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And Wildcard comes about <laughs> from them realizing that their group dynamic is brains, looks, uh, muscle, and wildcard. Those are their four <laughs> categories. So I'm sure we can find a way to kind of cross-compare with Graham's midfield analysis. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for helping me answer those listener questions. Joe, as you said, we're going to be back tomorrow to talk about all that good Champions League action. I plan to spend at least 45 minutes trying to understand the physics of Luka Modric's pass. But for now, Graham Ruthven, thank you for taking the time to answer some questions today. Thank you, Taylor Rotwell. Joe Lowry, thank you for doing the same, my friend. You got it. Long live cake year. (laughs) (laughs) Is it cake? Cake year? Cake ball? Cake boss? (laughs) All of them wonderful things. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all soon. 